We are going to be in Acts chapter 11. We're going to look at 18 verses. Uh, if you've been here every single week, we're going to, we're going to just be faithful to Scripture as, as Luke wrote these words uh, by the Holy Spirit, intending for us to hear the same story three times, essentially. And so he is going to be retelling the story of Cornelius' conversion and ultimately the Gentile Pentecost. And so that's, again... Um, when Gentiles receive the same spirit as the Jewish Christians. I know it's just one chapter, or it's a few chapters away, but if you remember back to Acts chapter 2, we're looking at the span of almost a decade between Acts chapter 2, the Jewish Pentecost, receiving the spirit and the events now. So, so keep in mind that the church has been advancing primarily through Jewish Christians this whole time. So it's unlike for us where we just turn a few pages and, oh my goodness, praise God, you have to see there's been an anticipation coming for some time because Gentiles, those are non-Jewish, uh, non-Jewish people, have been watching this movement of Christ and the Holy Spirit for a decade almost. And that's when we come to the pages of Scripture where we find ourselves today. Uh, you know how I have great uh, affection and appreciation for Charles Spurgeon uh, and his ministry in the 19th century. I, I just want to set this sermon out with be, by beginning with a quote from him where he says simply, I will not believe that thou hast tasted of the honey of the gospel if thou can eat it all to thyself. And so obviously in that beautiful language of another era and another time, He's simply saying he does not believe that someone who has truly received the gospel can keep it to themselves. I think we would all agree with that, at least in our minds. The question is whether or not we do in our hearts. So we have a task this morning, ultimately to consider what we have been given when we have been given the gospel. We talk about the gospel in in very individualistic ways or personal ways. I'm thankful that Jesus saved me, as we should be. Uh, I'm thankful thankful that uh, He saw fit to save me. We, We often talk about the gospel and our appreciation for Jesus saving us. But I just kind of want to look at that anew, if we could. For those of you who have heard the gospel language, it's been a very popular thing to say over the last 10 years. Basically, you could say that you're doing anything in the church, and as long as you said it was gospel-centered, it was cool, like gospel-centered sewing or gospel-centered sports. Or We've just kind of overused the word a little bit. Let me just explain to you that the gospel doesn't begin with you. It never begins with you. The gospel begins with a holy God who has always existed in triune perfection. What does that mean? That there is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. None of them created by the other. None greater than the other, but equal in the Trinity. And there was, it was and is, but there was in particular this holy God who did not need you or me or elephants or birds or dogs or mountains or valleys or rivers or streams. He needed none of it. He was perfectly sustained in himself and yet he chose to create. And this is where the Bible begins in Genesis chapter 1. What you need to understand about this God is that he's not like us. This God is not um, prone to wander. He is perfect. 
perfect and holy. And that's a, that's a word in our language that we don't love. We don't fully understand. But holiness, the best we can describe it, is set apart and completely unlike anything any of us have ever experienced because he is perfect. And so anything that is less than holy or other than holy simply cannot exist in the same space as him. He's perfect. The Bible describes his holiness uh, in such ways that if, if, if something that is unholy comes into his presence, it is destroyed immediately. It's that kind of holiness. So the, the gospel begins with this God who is holy and mighty and good and just, and he doesn't need you or me. Regardless, if you or I are here, guess who still exists? It's God. It's still him. And he creates us, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and we do what we do best. We desire our lordship rather than this perfect, sustaining, loving Father. And the sins of Adam and Eve, Genesis 3, continue to impact the world for thousands of years. And the Old Testament is a story about God in His mercy and grace and love continuing to redeem and offer forgiveness to His people who were for thousands of years defined by the nation Israel. They would, the, the Old Testament is a story of people rebelling against this holy God. You, you've been a kid once, you're still a big kid now, but when your parents told you to go left, there was something in you that just wanted to go right. And most of the time, unless you knew the consequences were severe enough, you would go right. There's just something in the human heart that doesn't cause us to have to learn how to lie. We're just little want-to-be lords ourselves. And so the Old Testament is a God who continues to capture his people, Israel, who are rebelling, defying, and always going right when he says, I promise you, to the left is a land of milk and honey. And they said, we'd rather harvest our own. And so the Bible is filled with God's mercy and love and redemption until ultimately he's been promising this whole time that he will reconcile their brokenness, their dishonor, their disorder, their rebellion, is that even in their rebellion, not, not because they're just awesome people, it's not like, oh my goodness, all you are so cool, I just want to save you, but rather in his love, he sees and sends his son to reconcile this great divide between humanity and a holy God. And that is the person of Christ. And in Christ, he goes to the cross and he carries the wrath of God upon himself. The perfect son takes the wrath of holy God. Why is there wrath? Because God is holy and we are not. And he absorbs the wrath of God himself. Yeah, all of it. You know, we talk about the blood and the gore. But there's a moment in time when the perfect Son of God looks to His heavenly Father who has enjoyed communion for all eternity and times past. And He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And He absorbs the wrath and is crushed under the weight of sin. But Jesus does not stay in the grave. He rises on the third day. And what the Bible says is that by God raising His Son on the third day, He is showing His approval that the sacrifice, the once and for all sacrifice for all of the rebellion and all of history, all of the future, has been accepted in Christ. And so the Christian gospel, the good news is, is that you will never work your way out of your rebellion. You are rebellious to the core. You will never do it. That God is not pleased with you, He is pleased with Jesus. And out of love and mercy, He offers you redemption through Christ. The good news is, is not only that like a temporary thing, is that God welcomes you 
into his eternal glory. The Bible ends by describing a new heaven and new earth. This is the gospel, and it begins with the holiness of God. And so just imagine living in that story for thousands of years, always and as quickly as you could, running to make a sacrifice every time you lied, you gossiped, you swore, you stole anything in your heart or your mind. Immediately you knew that there was a holy God. You had just offended Him above all. And immediately, as soon as possible, you would run to offer the sacrifice in the temple. Imagine being raised in this type of home. Before every faithful member of Israel, every Jewish member of society, that was their life. They'd wake up in the morning, they'd see their dad praying. Then in the afternoons, they'd see their dad going off to the temple with maybe a dove or a goat or an offering of some kind, knowing that your father was going to the temple to, 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 to see blood shed for the sins of the family. This is the way you lived. It was a part of your identity. So when you see the circumcision party in Scripture, you're seeing that they are. this is their life. This is the way they live. The coming Messiah, this beautiful fulfillment of all these things, he, he has made the once and for all sacrifice, but you're still, you can't get away from everything you've ever known. And then there's those people over there. Just, just over there. I don't know where they are. They're, they're not, not you, Jen, not you, Teresa. Away, beyond y'all. Who have never understood the holiness of God the demands of God, the brokenness, the, the reality of sin, they're just hearing about Jesus and all of a sudden they're getting the same forgiveness, the same redemption, the same future, the same eternity, and they've not had to go through any of that. So there really is an opportunity here to say, well, I'm thankful, but look at all that we've done. I mean, y'all know what circumcision is? We've even done that. We have offered ourselves and they're hearing about these Gentiles. And so Peter, who had to see all this and has lived this, he's lived with them. He's like, I get it, y'all. I get it. I get all the sacrifices. I get the way you just laid yourself out there. I get the way that we have been God's people for thousands of years. But I saw the same Spirit come to the Gentiles who are just as sinful and just as broken and just in, as, just as in need of a Savior as we are. I saw it. And so the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received this word of God, Acts chapter 11 says. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. You went and defiled yourself. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. He says, listen, listen, listen. I was in the city of Joppa praying and in a trance promise you guys, I was in a trance and I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven and by its four corners and it came down to me and looking at it closely, I saw animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, that things I couldn't eat by the law. Like guys, I was in this trance and I saw all this unclean food and, and verse 7 says, and I heard a voice saying to me, rise Peter, kill and eat. And Peter responded in, in verse 8, says, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. 
This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us he uh, had seen the angel in his house and said, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. Verse 15, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us in the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but ye will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, like who was I that I could stand in God's way? Like, yo, I didn't want to eat the food, but three times he said, rise, kill and eat, go do this, go reach the Gentiles. And if God gives them the same spirit, and if you look back in the last chapter, you see they're speaking in multiple languages, but yet everybody understands just like Acts chapter 2, like who am I to stand in God's way? And so when the circumcision party had every reason to object and deny and say, listen, they've not earned this. They've not walked the same road of sacrifice we have in all They heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Whoa. This is is huge. Jesus speaks in in the Gospel of Luke about this repentance that leads to forgiveness. Acts chapter 5, verse 31, speaking about the Jewish Christians, uses the same language like repentance that leads to life. Uh, what's going on here? I want to emphasize what I've already said this morning just a little bit. The, the, the circumcision party would have been the most conservative of the Jewish Christians. They would have held the highest standards of, of, of Jewish purity even in the Gospel. We will continue to be set apart in these ways that, that God gave Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 17. That's where, the, that's where this covenant with Abraham occurs. And in chapter 17, verses 9-14 through 14 of Genesis, he's teaching and talking about circumcision and saying, just as you are a people set apart by my covenant, you will always have a physical reminder of these things. And so the circumcision party, not only these people who have lived this life, they are physically reminded of their covenant with God. Here's the deal though. Their view of the gospel wasn't necessarily incorrect. It was just incomplete. And I think that's something very real for us to hear in 2022 in a Baptist church of all places, is that our view of the gospel may not be incorrect. It may just be a little incomplete, whether that's a head uh, awareness or objection. It's just, we, do we see the fullness of the gospel first in our lives and consequently in the lives of other people? The first observation that I want to make is that the gospel gives more than you do. It gives more than you do every single time. The beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, particularly as we see it unfold from the Jewish Christians then to the Gentiles, is that the gospel 10 times out of 10 always gives more than you do. Because it seems apparent that for all their commitment and their conviction and their long-standing traditions and religious obedience, they understood the true nature of this gospel, didn't they? Look at how they respond to Peter. It's not like, oh, we got to go down a long list of things. No, they simply say, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And this group, this group of people would have been the ones particularly to poke holes in the new gospel, wouldn't they? Like if you want somebody to tear down 
you know, you're, you're amped, you're jacked up because you got this new gospel. If you want a group to sit around like in committee format and kind of just scratch their, their beard and look at you with those evil eyes, you're so excited, this would have been the group to do it. But no, they can't help but to see that the gospel they received, there is something about it that is larger and more has greater implication than all the work they've ever done in their whole life. And let me just frame this, what I mean by this point for you. Any of the member of the circumcision party might have sat around their table and said, you know what? I've been a good kid my whole life. I was raised in the temple, studied the Torah, followed the rabbi's teaching, stayed pure and sacrificed faithfully when I failed. I have had much good and hard work to remain on the straight and narrow. That's the way that they might have talked. Or, as you might believe about yourself, I was always a good kid. I, you know, I always listened to my parents. I never drank and never smoked. It's always like the two markers of good life, you know? Like, I never drank or smoked. I talked about my neighbor down the street all the time, but I never drank and never smoked. Went to church my whole life. Like they had this resume, and I, you know, I've heard people kind of refer to their lives that way. I was always good. And that's really good. I'm really happy that you have never drank and you never smoked and that you've been a good kid and you were in church all the time. Or maybe you're an adult and you're like, man, I just, I just really have, have, have just always been kind of good. You know, it's kind of the way you hold yourself up, the straight and narrow kind of test. But then, then you see the people next to you who have lived these hellacious lives, so to speak. Like, just imagine you're on your deathbed and you have walked that straight and narrow path your whole life and in the hospital bed next to you is this dude who literally lived like hell his whole life didn't care about your good behavior or your good attitude and yet in a moment of time he falls on his knees before the holiness of God and calls upon Christ I mean let's be honest the way that we think about things that just doesn't seem fair and they had every reason to believe that But the gospel does more work every single time than you ever can or will in this life. The good news is, is that you don't have to count your own righteousness. The good news, the best news is you don't have to count your unrighteousness either. You see, if you want your goodness to count, then let your goodness count before a holy God. If you want to just put the list down of all the good things you've done in your life and let that stand before a holy God, that's fine. But there's another list you're going to have to put right next to it. Not only the righteous things you've done, the good things you've done, but literally revealing your heart before a holy God and all the unrighteous stuff. And you're going to say, judge me on that too, Father. In your holiness, judge me on that. It's not just for people who have walked the straight and narrow. The, the gospel is for the rebel, the one whose life has been marked by chaos and confusion. We're all sinners. We're all broken. Maybe some are a little prettier and packaged up nicer than others. It's like when I went to Las Vegas, everyone's like, oh, preacher going to Sin City, isn't he? I was like, y'all, Las Vegas, I appreciate Las Vegas because they don't attempt to hide their sin. You go to D.C., shoot, you go to Charlotte, go to Boone, everyone's walking around pretty and packaged in Bank of America suits, but they're doing the same thing everybody's doing in Vegas, you just can't see it. 
Like all of us are sinners. Some are just packaged and prettier than others, right? We hide it a little more. We're not the ones, you know, getting drunk and falling over in the streets, but we're the ones gossiping, hating, lusting in our hearts and minds. If you're going to count your goodness before a holy God, you've got to count your filth too. And that's why you never want your work to be the measure of your righteousness before God because every single time you will be found guilty. It's only when you acknowledge all the good and the bad that you've done in life, all that you've been given, and you see that nothing amounts, nothing stands before a holy God except for Christ. That's kind of the position that you have this circumcision party coming to realization, it seems like. For all the good we've done in our life, the gospel always gives more. It gives something better. Um, What does the gospel give that's better? Well, according to this text, the gospel gives repentance that leads to life. And this is, this is a place that I can't get away from because this is a part we don't like talking about. Repentance that leads to life. You notice how it's marked by that? Like they just don't say, then to the Gentiles, God has also granted a prosperous life with lots of money and blessings that it will be marked by earthly success. It doesn't give away the evangelical gospel that we've been preaching and peddling for far too long. No, then to the Gentiles, God has also granted salvation that comes without a cost, that comes without sacrifice or obedience or any of those things that Christ has demanded. No, no, then to the Gentiles, also God has granted repentance that leads to life. How is this better? Because for thousands of years, the Jewish nation has been repenting, but that repentance has led to nothing more than death. Don't you see, they've been living in this, in this and I'm going to use the term religion, but all religion is not bad, I'm not saying that, but this religious-led repentance that has just, just propagated and pushed forward the same endless cycle of rebellion, forgiveness, rebellion, forgiveness, rebellion, forgiveness. They've been repenting for thousands of years with nothing more than death to show for it. And all of a sudden, the Messiah arrives and we receive, they receive this repentance that leads to life. How is that better? Repentance that leads to life. This is exactly what Jesus said would happen in Luke chapter 24. (laughs) Repentance is this really misunderstood word. When we talk about it, we're like, oh, that means turning away from your sin. But every time we hear the word in the modern church, repent, we get kind of squirrely, don't we? Let me be very clear. There is no salvation without repentance. There is no gospel received without repentance. And I'm not talking about that one time, five minutes or five years or 50 years ago that you got all emotional and started crying and came to an altar like this and repented once. All of life is repentance. And if that sounds miserable to you, then you don't understand repentance. If you're like, oh my goodness, I mean, yeah, it's not helpful. The Puritans describe repentance as a vomiting of the soul. But if you have a negative view of repentance, then you have the same kind, you have a, a view of repentance that leads to death, I promise you. If repentance to you is evil and to be avoided, your repentance is leading you nowhere but death. 
And let me explain what, what I mean by this. If repentance that leads to life is a celebration of the Jewish Christians, and, and now that the Gentiles have it, let me, just, let me just contrast this with you. Tim Keller, by the way, is one of the most helpful modern theologians on this topic of repentance and joy. So if you ever want to be encouraged, go just Google Tim Keller repentance, and bruh, you're going to get results. But religious repentance is how I want to differentiate that. Repentance that leads to death. This is so important to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So important. The gospel is not delivered as good news until a man or a woman or a child come to terms with the reality of the bad news. Religious repentance, first of all, is self-righteous. What do I mean by that? Well, it's a life marked by a pattern of atoning for sins by offering your better behavior, your changed pattern to God as they come. Like, God, I have sinned against you and I will do better. God, I have sinned against you and I won't do that again. God, I have sinned against you and I will modify my behaviors. And really, that leads to death every single time. Self-righteous. What can you do? How do you pull yourselves up by the bootstrap and just not do that thing again? That's, that's you attempting to atone for your sins through your works. Religious repentance. Secondly, religious repentance is bitter. All the way down. Like a bad medicine. It's traumatic. It reinforces our notion that our only hope is to live good enough for God to bless us. Like God is some puppet master who pulls strings of punishment for our disobedience who rewards us with a new prize for our obedience like a dog. God, I, I don't, I, I don't want to be cursed or I want the blessing of this thing so I'll just do better yet again. Religious repentance is selfish because it really is just our selfishness wanting to avoid punishment. We're afraid of the consequences so we repent. That's not real repentance, but that's what we do. Like when we think about repentance as those things, I agree with you. It's miserable. And I'm not going to do it. There's no point in that. Because all I'm doing is going to the Lord saying, I messed up, I'll do better. This is the repentance of thousands and thousands of years, except for there were prescribed specific elements that they must have done to be forgiven in that moment. But this is the repentance that leads to death. What is the repentance that leads to life? What is the gospel repentance? What are you called to this morning? What am I called to this morning? Well, first of all, gospel-centered repentance does not focus on self-righteousness, but Christ-righteousness. You don't have to make yourself suffer to merit forgiveness. Do you know why? Because Christ suffered to merit forgiveness. You don't have to, to work to, to earn your forgiveness because there's nothing you do. Christ has earned your forgiveness. And He suffered so that you might be free of it. So you don't claim your own worth or your own unworth. You don't claim any of that. You don't talk about that. You talk about the worth of Christ and Christ alone. That you may be free and simply receive the forgiveness of Christ. You're, you, I've heard so many people, I don't feel like I deserve to be forgiven. You don't. Absolutely, I affirm that a thousand percent. You don't deserve to be forgiven. It doesn't matter what you deserve or don't deserve. Christ has earned your forgiveness. So quit looking at your power and your strength and look to the power and strength of Christ alone when you repent. You want to worship Jesus? Repent. It is beautiful. Secondly, gospel-centered 
Repentance is not bitter all the way down. Why? Because you are hoping in Christ's righteousness, not your own. It's not a matter if, a maybe, is there enough? Did I say the right words? Did I feel it enough? That's the biggest one. Did I feel it enough? I promise you, on a cross, bore for the Savior of man who bled out slowly, he felt all of it enough. So stop looking beyond the cross for feeling. It's not bitter because you're not just admitting your weaknesses or lapses. You are accepting and being loved in the Gospel. Makes me want to repent right now. It's not selfish either. Why? Because in religious repentance, you're just sorry for the consequences. But in Gospel-centered repentance that leads to life, you're sorry for the sin itself. Like, it's a wretched, broken world. And yet again, Seth succumbed. I fell and failed. And I hate the sin that made it so. To paraphrase all of this in a much more succinct way, Tim Keller says, fear-based repentance makes us hate ourselves. Joy-based repentance makes us hate the sin. The Gospel that leads to life is known by way of repentance that leads to life. So we need to stop fearing it. Your relationship with Jesus on a daily basis, the desire of the Holy Spirit for your life, we always hear people say, I I, I read my Bible, I pray, I talk, I sing. Your relationship with Jesus is marked by a path and a life of repentance. I promise you, if you repent not to make yourself feel bad, you're, you're, don't, don't, don't lessen the impact of the cross, but rather to experience the joy and the and assurance of salvation in Christ. That's why they're so excited. Like they get to do this now. Like we can't, even though we've done this our whole lives, how can we keep this back? How can we keep the joy of, the, of repentance that leads to life? This is the only gospel given for all. Like they recognize in this moment, this isn't just for us. How could we keep this thing to ourselves? This is not, by the way, the, the, this is not the last time this will be a conflict. They're gonna, I mean, the entire book of Galatians is over a similar conflict. But in this moment in time, 10 years after they received the Spirit, man, we want the world to be free of the bondage to sin and death. We want that. We desire that. This gospel is for all. How can they stand in the way of this gospel getting out? Grace and partiality. I mean, parti- this is what we see, the partiality. There is no partiality, right? We don't, we don't anyone who calls upon the name of, the Jesus, of Jesus may be saved. This is not just come as you are and stay as you are. This is come as you are and be transformed. Come dead, be made alive. How can we keep this stuff back? I will tell you the greatest heresy, big word, of the modern evangelical church is lifting up kind of in a very suave way, but we've lifted up a gospel of works for many, many years. Come to Christ, 
and do good. We, we've made people believe, even though we would never say this, it's not in our confession of faith, but essentially, what does it mean to be a Christian? I cannot tell you how many evangelicals I've heard say, well, you need Jesus and then you, then you need to do right. And I, I just wonder, like, the beauty of this moment, the beauty of this gospel, the beauty of this repentance, the beauty of the power and the work of the gospel, have we, have we lost it? Everybody talks about watering down the gospel. I don't know that it's watering down as much as it is maybe having an incomplete view of the gospel. I was reading the other day, Generation Z. If y'all are talking about millennials being the young generation, you're showing your age. They aren't the young generation anymore. Zs are in. Late 90s babies, early 1000s babies. It's Generation Z. It's going to be the largest generation in America in the year by 2026. The millennials are outpaced. So if you're talking about these millennials and their tablets, you're, you're showing your ignorance. We're way past that. But Generation Z, did you know that 9% of them identifies evangelical Christian and 9% identifies atheist? There are as many atheists in Gen Z as there are evangelical Christians. Like, I'm not just saying, eh, I'm loosey-goosey. I am convinced there is no God. Generation Z is fascinating, too. Of, of Christians in that generation... Almost two-thirds have no need and are not connected to a local church. Those are Zs who say they're Christian are like, I'm out. Two-thirds. What, what, what do those statistics have to do with the text? They're our people group. That, that's our people group, right? Generation Z. That's our people group. They are the ones whose parents left the church. They are the ones who saw apathy at home. Maybe dads or moms, if they were connected to a church, they're the ones who saw people who were religious but failed to show and demonstrate and maybe even know the gospel. They knew church. They knew structure. And they knew works. We all know works. But they didn't know the gospel. Martin Lloyd-Jones prophetically said many years ago that the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. This is still true today. But brothers and sisters, the gospel that we give, a repentance that leads to life, and yes, we're using the R word. We are holding the R word up front. Repent and be baptized. But if we don't see the glory of the gospel for ourselves, we surely aren't going to attract a chaotic, infused world to much of anything at all. If we don't lift up the goodness of Christ and the failings of ourselves, even in repentance, if we don't lift that up, what are we attracting the world towards? This has clearly happened like overtly in mainline Protestant denominations. They lost the gospel, so they're trying to pick political messaging to lift themselves back up into some sense of notoriety. But we can't lose the gospel. We can't lose this gospel, this full, true, whole, life-giving, joyous gospel. There are people all around you, all around us, particularly this time of year, 
And if we, if you, if I are so captivated by the Gospel of grace in Christ Jesus, if I am living a life marked by repentance, not leading to death, but to joy, I can't help but want others to experience the goodness of this truth. So for you, I'm not saying go out and share the Gospel with a thousand friends or even one right now. I am saying come to terms with this Gospel yourself. And don't let your hard heart or Satan say, oh, you're saved, you got this down. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a life marked by repentance. I'm talking about right now in this moment. I don't care how long you've known Jesus or maybe you never really have. I don't care about any of that in this moment. I am saying you worship God for this Gospel. Be captivated by the gift of this Gospel. Be joyous that when you pray and repent, you can put your resume back in your pocket and point to the goodness of Christ and Christ alone. It is this kind of church, these kinds of people, who love well and are serious about sin because we know the reaches and the extent to which our Savior went. A people who live in the light of this Gospel that will invariably attract the world. So Father, we pray. We pray that our lives would be marked by joyous repentance. By a Gospel that gives more good than we ever could. By a Gospel that solves the greatest problem humanity has ever faced. A Gospel that brings an end to sin. A Gospel that calls us to love and lavish our Savior Christ and lift His name up as Lord and King over all creation. To be peculiar people in a broken and hurting world. Restore to us the joy of our salvation. Lead us to repent so that we may see Christ more fully. And may our hearts being made right before a holy and perfect God. May we proclaim, not of ourselves, may we not boast in our works or our deeds, but no matter what we may have temporarily in this world or in this life, may we worship and proclaim all we have is Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.